17. Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Can I ask you a personal question? What's the look on God's face when he thinks of you? What's the look on God's face when he thinks of you? I want you to just tuck away that question in the back of your mind. In my opinion, there's almost, uh, there's almost nothing better than a good documentary. Uh, my son and I have been recently addicted to the show on Netflix called uh, Chef's Table that takes uh, one particular chef from around the world and spends an hour, you sort of get to know their origin story and who they are and what meals they've created. Um, Jesus sort of had four documentaries written about his life, about who he was. Um, They're kind of the equivalent of what a documentary would be if all you had was a parchment and a stylist. And uh, those four documentaries are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they make up the four perspectives of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we've been, over the last several weeks, going through one of those perspectives, the perspective of of this guy named Matthew. Uh, It's this documentary, otherwise known as a gospel, that he wrote um, is is, is centered on the, the life and the ministry of Jesus, what was central about his person and work. And Matthew, as we saw last week, was uh, he, he, he's coming at Jesus from a very unique and interesting perspective. Matthew was, um, if you know the gospel, and if maybe you were here last week, uh, he, was, he was formerly a tax collector, which would have made him a, a social and religious and political outsider to his community. And yet Jesus invited him to be part of his entourage of disciples. So just to fill you in on the context of this passage, if, if you're new or you haven't been reading along with Matthew, um, Matthew, the tax collector, has been, in, has been called by Jesus. Uh, Jesus one day showed up to his workplace and invited Matthew to join him, commanded him to join him. And he left everything to follow Jesus. And the first thing that Matthew does is throw this extravagant party, uh, this huge party. He invites all of his friends And this passage that Lori read for us this morning comes um, in that context. Jesus is still at this party. He's still at this celebration. And last week we looked at this question posed by the Pharisees, mainly the question, why, Jesus, are you hanging out with the kinds of people that you're hanging out with? Why are you partying with spiritual and social uh, outcasts in the community? Uh, that, that was basically their question. Why, why is Jesus regularly interacting with those kinds of people? And today the question comes from a different group of people. Uh, they're referred to in verse 14 as John's disciples. 
Um, So what I want to do this morning is look at their question, the question of John's disciples, and then Jesus' response. And we'll do that really uh, uh, just under three headings this morning and for a couple minutes. Uh, First, a new conception of God. Second, a new conception of sin. And then third, a new conception of you. Uh, so we're going to look at John's, his, his, his disciples' question to Jesus and his answer and his question to them under three headings, a new conception of God, a new conception of sin, and a new conception of you. So the first thing to see is that Jesus is he's doing something new. Uh, I hope that seems, I hope that's rather obvious from what the language that Jesus says about these illustrations he uses about an unshrunk new piece of cloth in verse 16, and then this new wine that he refers to in verse 17. Jesus is doing something new. That's the point. That is the point. Jesus is doing something new. It's easy to get distracted by John's disciples, uh, their question about fasting, and then you end up turning this whole passage into uh, an issue of fasting, and what is fasting in in the religious life, and is that helpful, and are followers of Jesus supposed to do that? And I actually think there's kind of a psycho-spiritual reason that we often read texts like this that way. Um, but it's not about fasting at all. Jesus teaches about fasting elsewhere in the gospel, in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 6. He talks about the importance of fasting and how to go about it. But here, Jesus is saying something revolutionary about who he is and what he came to do. And so the question is, what is that new thing? We have to get at what that new thing is. Well, first, as I said, Jesus is giving us a new conception of God. What do I mean? He's giving us a new conception of God. Look at verse 15. Jesus is asked a question, and he responds, as he often does if you know the Gospels, he responds with a question. The question is, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus' response, is it reasonable, is it reasonable at a wedding party when people have spent months planning the meal, ordering the food, hiring the chef, is it reasonable to refuse food and wine at a wedding wedding reception? Is that reasonable? What's the implication? The implication is that Jesus is a a groom. He's a bridegroom. Jesus is claiming to be the bridegroom. And that should immediately, it should have immediately clued the people around him into a reality, and it should clue you into a reality, two realities about Jesus. The first is this. Jesus is God. He is more transcendent than you could possibly imagine. See, when Jesus claims to be a bridegroom, He's not just choosing kind of a cute metaphor, uh, something to shock people. He is claiming to be God himself. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament would have immediately remembered that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the creator, the God who delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt, this God depicted himself as a bridegroom all over the Old Testament. In fact, the whole episode in Exodus, of God making a covenant, making an oath with the nation of Israel, a binding legal relationship, a permanent exclusive bond at Mount Sinai, that's referred to over and over again in the Old Testament as a kind of marriage ceremony, as a wedding. 
Ezekiel 16 describes God finding Israel as an abandoned, dying baby girl. And God rescues her. He cares for her. He nurtures her. And eventually he betroths himself in kindness to her. This is the whole book of Hosea. Hosea the prophet. He is called uh, to marry a prostitute. A, a woman by the name of Gomer. And it's meant to be a lived out metaphor for God and his relationship with his people. Or consider this from Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah writes, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. If Israel is the bride, the implication is that Yahweh, the God, the creator God, is the groom. God reveals himself as, as the great bridegroom. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is identifying himself as God. He's saying, all of that, that's me. Now we talked about this a little bit last week, but look, we we need to make sense of Jesus' claim, right? We need to make sense of that. If you do nothing else over the course of the rest of your life, you need to make sense of that claim that Jesus says, I am God, I am the bridegroom. There is not anyone else in the whole course of history who has so influenced society, culture, religion for the last 2,000 years than this Jesus, and he claimed to be God in the flesh. So that entirely precludes any possibility that you or I have of embracing some of his teaching while just turning your back on other things that he says, things that we don't like. Because either he says, he says, and he means who he is, or he's certifiably insane, like Charles Manson insane. So Jesus undoubtedly, unreservedly claimed to be God. He gives us this new conception of God. He claims to be God, the God of the Old Testament. That means Jesus is more transcendent than anyone ever thought. And at the same time, at the exact same time, Jesus is showing that God is more close, more proximate, more near, nearer to you than you would have ever dreamed. What do I mean? Well, think about Jesus' designation of himself as the bridegroom, as the bridegroom. If Jesus, if God, is a bridegroom, if he wants to be called a groom, that means that he wants to relate to you primarily not as a creator to his creature, as a king to his subjects, but as a husband to his wife. Think on that for a moment. The God who is infinite and holy and all-powerful and utterly transcendent wants to be close, closer than a couple on their wedding night. Closer to you than a couple on their wedding night. That's the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. God has come not to teach you not to lecture you, not to rule over you, but to be with you. That's crazy talk. And it's all entirely true. So Jesus gives us this new conception of God, but he also gives us a new conception of sin. That's the second point. And stick with me. If you're turned off by the language of sin, stick with me for a moment. You know, we are, I think, whenever I read the Gospels, we're all haters when it comes to the Pharisees. Everybody loves to hate on the Pharisees. I mean, you don't even have to be religious. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be spiritual to dislike the Pharisees, to dislike how they 
uh, their sort of superiority complex, their hypocrisy, how they sort of cover up with this religious veneer just to impress people. It's gross. But these are not Pharisees asking the question. These are John's disciples. And the John that's referenced here, if you're not familiar with the Gospels, uh, he's this guy who's otherwise known as John the Baptist sometimes, John the Baptizer. He's actually a relative. He's a family relative of Jesus. And at, G- and at one point in his ministry, Jesus says about John, his cousin, he says that John is the greatest prophet in all of Israel's history. So John's disciples are actually good guys. They are put together morally. They're dedicated to God. They're not hypocrites. They were the kinds of people who put their money where their mouth was. They would have made amazing neighbors. John's disciples are great people, but they've missed entirely the boat on sin. They've missed it entirely. They fail to understand what sin is. How so? Well, to get at that, you need to, we need to sort of tease out some of the assumptions in the question that they ask of Jesus. See, according to the Old Testament, there was only one required day of fasting, only one day of fasting, and it was on this day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But over time, over Israel's history, there was an evolution of this idea of fasting uh, such that you would do that regularly and oftentimes associated with periods or days of grief and mourning. That's the association that Jesus makes in verse 15. He associates these two ideas of grief, uh, of mourning, of sadness, and fasting. Um, So you would often fast during a period of of mourning over someone's death, or if there was a national disaster uh, in the community, in the nation, in the world, you you would set aside a season of fasting. So John's whole message, though, if you read the accounts of his, of his prophetic campaign in the Gospels, really centered around the idea of you, using not only fasting, uh, but other spiritual practices, uh, being ascetic, uh, to get people cleaned up and repentant and improved prior to the arrival of the Messiah. So you would get yourself cleaned up, improved, fixed, and then the Messiah would come. And so I don't think that it would be a stretch to say that John's disciples really had some misguided assumptions about the nature of sin. See, on the one hand, they likely would have viewed sin as some kind of manageable reality, something that I can deal with myself, something that I can uh, fix on my own. If we are disciplined enough, if we are spiritual enough, if we were focused enough, then I can sort of master and control this sin thing. On the other hand, there almost seems to be in this question uh, that these disciples bring to Jesus, there almost seems to be an assumption, an implication of the idea that God or the divine or Yahweh is somehow pleased or satisfied with good behavior, with obedient behavior, with following the rules. Now, before you sort of look down your nose on, at John's disciples and say, that's pretty primitive and passe, we're living in 2019, um, think for one moment about this cultural moment. In 30 AD, John's disciples are asking Jesus, why don't you fast? Why don't you fast, Jesus? 
In 2019, the question to Jesus would have been something like this. Jesus, why isn't that meal locally sourced? You laugh, but it's true. You know it's true. I think I've said this before, but the way we talk about food in 2019 is the way that we used to talk about sex in the bedroom 60 years ago. William, William uh, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but Derezowitz, uh, he's an American writer. He taught at Yale for about a decade. Uh, he says this, he says, food now expresses the symbolic values and absorbs the spiritual energies of the educated class. It has become invested with the meaning of life. It is seen as the path to salvation for the self and humanity. You hear that? We have, we have put into food now all of the symbolic values and spiritual energies of our life, of our identity. So we no longer use the language of cheating for a broken vow in a marital covenant, but we do use it for not following our diets. People brag all the time about fasting now. They just call it now a cleanse, purifying ourselves from the inside. It's why it now takes me an hour to find out where I want to eat because if it's not four stars or above on Yelp or not Instagram worthy, I'm not interested because I want the approval of other people. I want their validation. I want to be a part of some sort of group. It's why Gwyneth Paltrow's um, lifestyle brand, Goop, grew just in one decade to a $250 million a year business in one decade. Because we're promised this, do this and you will be like Gwyneth. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this, that the assumptions of John's disciples, the assumptions that they held 2,000 years ago, are the same ones that we are here, we are dealing with, you are dealing with, I am dealing with today. That sin is some, something manageable as long as I do the right things, read the right books, eat the right foods, I can control this. And that approval and validation and acceptance, divine or otherwise, socially, in my networks, comes when I perform, comes when I obey. See, we use food or the, or the lack of it to control, validate, approve ourselves. But it's not just food. See, we're all trying to be enough. Aren't you trying to be enough? You're trying to be thin enough. You're trying to be wealthy enough, educated enough influential enough, religious enough. It's because we think that there's something. I think that there's something that I can do, some work that I can achieve that will make me right with God. But friends, sin is not just a list of do's and do nots, a list of sort of religious, mm, don't do that. That's not what sin is. It's a condition. Paul in the New Testament says that you and I are dead in sin. That's a condition. That's entirely different. It means that not only are the quote unquote bad things do, not those things, the bad things, those are sin, but all the good things that you are doing to get that sense of enoughness, what the Bible calls righteousness, all of those things that you're doing are actually sin. And the only way, the only way, friends, 
to get out of that is to admit that you're dead and bank all of your trust, all of your hope, all of your faith in a God who raises the dead. See, John and his disciples, these sort of odd people that wore camel's hair, although I sort of think that that would be really actually quite cool sort of in a hipster millennial way. Um, I should do that now before somebody, one of you takes it and steals it. Uh, see, all of John's disciples and all of us who are exhausting ourselves, you're exhausting yourself, trying to assert your lovability, trying to validate your existence is because you think that maybe this work system, maybe this old garment, maybe this old wineskin will actually work and it won't. God comes along and says, no, nah, nope. You need to die. You need to go into the grave and be raised into something brand new entirely. It's not patchwork. It's not an issue of just some adjustments to your habits, getting a better accountability partner, finding the right program or the list of tips. It's about death and resurrection. See, that's a whole new conception of sin. You cannot manage it. I cannot manage it. You can't stop it. Everything you are trying to do to control it is actually just digging you deeper. All you can do, all you can do is die and trust the one who raises the dead. That's a new conception of sin. It shocked me this week. I hope it shocks you. Jesus is doing something new. He's offering a new conception of God and sin but he's also here to provide a new conception of you. How so? The key is actually found in verse 15 with this kind of cryptic statement of Jesus. He says, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time is coming when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. What is Jesus saying? Most of the scholars who read this passage, they say that the language here actually suggests kind of a violent or an unwelcome removal. So Jesus says that he is the groom, but something is going to, ha- something, something is going to happen to this groom, and he is going to be violently and forcibly removed. Friends, this happens at the cross. At Golgotha, Jesus is forcibly removed. He is taken away from the land of the living. He is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And all oppression and judgment fall on this Jesus. Why did he do that? Why did he, the groom, the holy one, the compassionate one, the just one, why was he violently removed? Why was he crucified as a common criminal? Why did he hang naked for six hours on the cross? Why, why did people spit at him? Why did people condemn him? It's because you and I have cheated on God. God created us to have a relationship of forever love with him. And we chose to pursue lovers less wild. We chose in the face of all of God's kindness, all of his generosity to hand him divorce papers and walk away. But God knew that all of our efforts to make ourselves lovable and beautiful and acceptable and enough and righteous wouldn't work. So he chose recklessly, foolishness, foolishly against all reason 
to love the unlovable. This week, Katie and I are celebrating uh, our 10-year anniversary. Um, And I know some of you, many of you, are sort of shifting gears into wedding season. You may be planning a wedding. You may be thinking about uh, the save the dates that are on your refrigerator. Have you ever noticed, have you ever been at a wedding and thought to yourself, or noticed this about weddings, that there's no such thing as an ugly bride? There's no, and I, I realize people are, you know, they're, they're, differently, naturally gifted, but whenever you come to, whenever I'm at a wedding, I have never been at a wedding where there is an unattractive bride. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't know if that's the dress. I don't know if that's the cosmetics. I don't know if it's the hairstylist. I don't know what it is, but there's, there's no such thing as an unattractive bride. And as I was thinking about marriage and weddings and, and, and all the fanfare, uh, this week, it also occurred to me that marriage and, and a wedding is such an odd thing. Think about what happens when two people get married, that um, if you come into a marriage and you are, you're just bearing like thousands of dollars of student debt, all of that debt, all of that baggage gets transferred to the other person. Isn't that odd? Isn't that crazy? Uh, isn't that insane? All of, all, of your, all of your student debt, it, you know, it could be, be $5,000, it could be $50,000. Now that other person becomes responsible and liable for that debt. But amazingly, it also works the other way too. Like, um, you know, Katie didn't marry me out of my wealth, but, you know, as, uh, imagine marrying someone who had a million dollars. What would that be like? What would it be like to marry somebody who had a billion dollars? You get access to all of that money. That's amazing. It's crazy. Friends, did you know you are the bride of Jesus? That on the cross, he became liable for all of your debt? That he... he he paid for it all. It's all in the tomb. It's all, it's gone forever. Your sin is gone forever. And in its place, you get the billion dollars, the billions of dollars. The enoughness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. Jeremiah asks, have you forgotten your ornaments? Friend, have you forgotten your ornaments? Have you forgotten your wedding dress? Have you forgotten how beautiful you are to him? I asked you at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to tuck away a little question. There's like three of you that remembered what it was, but I asked you at the beginning too, what is the look on God's face when he thinks of you? What is the look on God's face when he thinks of you? Being a pastor doesn't afford you a lot of privilege. There's one privilege that I get that's not a lot of people get, and it's when I'm standing and officiating over a wedding. Usually it's customary. Uh, when the bride is walking down the aisle, everyone is standing and looking at the bride. Uh, but because of my unique position, I get to stand close to the groom, and oftentimes I will look at the groom um, as he is watching his bride come down the aisle. Some of you may have seen that before. You may have sort of cheated and take, 
taking a look at the groom. And what you will usually find is an expression of just sheer joy, inexpressible joy, almost a kind of this sort of weighty joy that is, that it almost hurts. It's so good it almost hurts. And usually there's tears streaming down his face. Did you know that God looks at you like that? He looks at me like that. You are coming down the aisle. He's in awe of you. Tears are streaming down his face because he is ravished by your beauty. Because he has clothed you in the righteousness and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. That's Jesus. Isn't he something? Let's pray. Father, help us by your spirit to know how vast and deep and wide is your undying love of us sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in a... um,